G'day podcasting friends of the show. I just thought I would quickly pop in and let you know that we're changing speed. We're changing gears. We're uh, changing direction, perhaps. Something's changing. But if you've listened to the podcast for long enough, you may have noticed that it isn't a podcast just about religion or just about Christianity or just about politics. We tend to hop around different ideas because what the focus of Ideas Digest is, is to explore the ideas that divide us. These are religious. They are spiritual. They are political. They are scientific. Whatever category these ideas belong to, that's what I'm very curious in exploring. If I was a smarter podcast producer, I probably wouldn't jump around uh, ideas as much to let you in on a bit of the back end of the podcast. Our listenership goes up and down quite a bit as I tap into a certain niche. Maybe it's the conservative Christian niche. Maybe it's the deconstructed progressive Christian niche. Numbers will go up. And then once I stop talking about that one topic, they will dip off again because that's what some people tune in. They just kind of want to hear the one thing that they tuned in for and then they dip out. But you dear listener and friend of the show. If you are really on board with with the Ideas Digest curiosity of exploring the ideas that divide us, then hopefully you find this next direction interesting to you because we are about to explore some ideas around science and COVID and vaccines. I have done an episode on vaccines, on anti-vaxxers before. I might reissue a few uh, of these episodes to kind of clump them together. What I've noticed as I turn on the news or look on Facebook, the idea that is currently dividing us right now are ideas around COVID. Is it harmful? Is it not? Are are vaccines helpful? Are they not? Is science helpful or is it useless? Everyone says they're claiming that they're looking at the science but drawing wildly different conclusions. So I'm very curious. I'm not here to tell you what you should think, but I am here to explore with you how people come to their different ideas around science. How are people using science? So in this next conversation with friend of the show, friend of the show Simon, he's talking about nutrition. But what I'm very curious about, as you might pick up in the interview, is how is he approaching science that might be different to friend of the show Pete, who I'll who I will re-release the episode next week. How do they engage with the same thing called science? How do they do it differently? And where do these different approaches lead these two different people? So I thought I'd jump on to give you a bit of a a heads up and a background on where we're going. If you're just popping in for a short time just to hear about one particular topic and dip back out, it's great to have you here. Might catch you again later. But if you are a true podcasting friend of the show that that is interested in exploring the ideas that divide us in order to increase your empathy and open your mind, then here we go. Enjoy this next episode. I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. G'day and welcome back to another episode of Ideas Digest, the live podcast practice where we explore the ideas that divide us in order to find the humanity that I believe connects us. My name's Conrad and if you're a new friend of the show, welcome. If you're an old friend of the show, obviously, welcome, goes without saying. Now, here at Ideas Digest, 
What we try and do is we try and explore a wide variety of divisive ideas, the things that split us into our little tribes. Now, we all like to think, myself included, that we listen to all sides of the argument, the amount of times we hear that. No, I, I, I read all sides. I listen to everyone's argument. You know, we like to think we listen to those we disagree with. But in the age of the almighty algorithm, I don't think we do this as much as we think we do. Probably just like eating your vegetables. We all like to think we do it. But uh, let's face it we might be in a bit of self-denial. So thanks for joining the Ideas Digest journey. Now to the clickbait. Let's pull people in, mislead people, hopefully, that if clickbait hasn't misled you, I haven't done my job. Mainstream media has killed science. I'm sure that's probably not that um, controversial. Most people might agree with that. But I need someone to help me explain it. Welcome, new friend of the show, Simon from Plant Proof. Plant Proof Podcast, Plant Proof Book. Simon, thanks for joining me. Conrad, pleasure to be here, mate. Really uh, looking forward to seeing where we go. <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> me too. Well, and I guess before we even kick off, you know, we've just met. Uh, I'm, I'm seeing you on the through the computer screen and I was going to guess, but I know the answer to this. You're a Bondi guy, yes? I am. You were going to, yes. guess, you were going to guess Byron Bay and uh, <laughs> actually... Uh, it's a funny story. I'm actually moving to Byron Bay, so <laughs> I, I'm not surprised. That was I had in my notes, and you've you've killed one of my assumptions there. But a Byron guy, but especially in lockdown right now, you are eyeing the golden the golden coast of Byron as an escape route, surely. Yeah, well, unfortunately, with the restrictions, I think that it makes that yes, a little more difficult. Stuck. A little more difficult than uh, I would I would like, and I'm sure many people in Sydney would like. But uh, fingers crossed, uh, we move through this period, and then uh, mm. yeah, we we my uh, girlfriend and I we we have our eyes set on uh, moving up there. Hopefully, end of this year. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say you know, end of the year. Lockdowns lift, fingers crossed. I run into you outside, you know, some Byron smoothie bowl place. You know, I'm ordering a peanut butter smoothie bowl or whatever. I don't know, I don't know, smoothie bowls, acai or whatever. And oh, Simon, mate, it's nice to it's nice to meet you in person. Tell me about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? Just some general introductions. Cool. Well, uh, I host a podcast, and on that podcast, oh. I I'm very curious about science. And particularly nutrition and and how the food the the food choices we make affect our health and also how they affect the world around us, which is becoming a, an increasingly important topic uh, with uh, climate change very much being sort of front and center in the news. Uh, mm-hmm. So I do that, and uh, my background is I have a master's in nutrition with a, a research focus. Uh, my dad has 35, 40 years uh, experience now working as a scientist, uh, a physiologist in the lab under the microscope. Uh, so I've been surrounded by science since I was a little kid and always had a, a very deep appreciation for uh, the how, how science can, can improve our lives effectively mm-hmm. and help, help us better understand things. So that's, that's me in a nutshell. And uh, I try to to use the the podcast platform and social media to help clear up uh, that confusion, which you alluded to earlier when uh, talking about mainstream media, which sometimes mm-hmm. uh, makes my job a little bit harder. 
murder science, it seems. <laughs> I should have used the word murder. That's more emotive. Uh, well, that's a great nutshell, Simon. Thanks for giving me such a good nutshell that has dispelled some assumptions that I might just have on the surface level when I run into you outside a yoga barn, perhaps, <laughs> in Byron Bay. <laughs> but I, I want to fire some assumptions at you that I don't know if you get them or not, mm. but in the field you're in, health, nutrition, podcasts, science, I want to fire some assumptions that I might have when, I, when I've just met you. How does that sound? Let's do it. And you can give me a yes or no which box you, you, you fit into. It, it, it's the next level of the game if you, if you stick to the yes and no. You okay. know. It, it's hard to fight the, <laughs> the desired nuance there. Okay. We, we've, we've covered the first one. You're going to move to Byron. Ding, ding. Big yes. Okay. You're moving to Byron. This is the, the flow and effect. You, you're some new age yoga guy. Uh, not quite. Not a stereotypical yogi. I I do I do uh, yoga here and there, but it's probably one of those things that kind of uh, I forget about and then I, I go back to it. But I'm I'm by no means a, a dedicated yogi. Mm-hmm. You're not a yogi, but you're open to it. I'm open you're, to you're, it. Yeah, you're yogi curious. I you feel dab- you dabble. I'm, I am I am yoga curious, and and every time I do it, I'm reminded uh, how much better it makes me feel. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. At the moment, you're in Bondi. That's right. So, mate, got your little espresso and your, your green smoothie. Bondi <laughs> hipster, that's you. <laughs> I'll leave that to uh, other people to decide. <laughs> I like that. Letting other people judge. That's okay. Yeah. Stepping back from that one. Okay. Now to some, uh, some harder hitting ones. Sure. But I think uh, pretty topical and only growing more and more topical. You're talking about science. It might seem, and you know, you're, you're talking about your dad having a background in science, you being around science, um, but I don't think that changes your, this assumption that I'm going to throw at you. Simon, Byron, you want to move to Byron, science, do your own research. You got to be an anti-vax, like Bill Gates is microchipping us 5G kind of level. I am pro-science, so... I'll again. I'll leave that to the listeners to decide what that means. Okay. All right. Well, that is very ambiguous. I think, which is which is good. You're okay. You're talking about nutrition. You're like an evangelical YouTube convince you to be vegan. I'm here to guilt you, kind of vegan nutrition guy. No, I actually uh, very rarely would talk about ethics. I might have a guest on here and there that could talk about the ethical side of things, but. Even in my book, I made a very concerted effort. I think we should be able to talk about nutrition and its effect on human health separate of other issues, even though they are, when we, when we ultimately make our, our food choices, there are, there are more things to consider than our health sometimes for certain people, depending on their circumstances. But if we're going to appreciate science, we need to be able to separate those different pillars. Uh, so my, my approach is to, to look at nutrition, you know, in isolation from, from ethics. Mm -hmm. So no, like Simon destroys meat eater at university videos out there. That's, that's, (laughs) you won't find that online. (laughs) Okay. Last one. You, you've, man, you've, uh, you've half answered this one already. I was going to say, you're like a bloody greenie trying to save the trees and the chickens. (laughs) Well, I actually, I do think we should save the trees. So maybe, uh, maybe that does make me a greenie, but I'm not out there tying myself to the trees. Uh, okay. yes. But, you know, I, I think 
it is becoming more and more important, particularly when we're voting, to to try and get get uh, people into parliament who do care about the environment. So if that mm. makes me a greenie, then you know I'll wear that badge. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sky News would label you as such, I believe. <laughs> I can't wait for the day that you pop up on Sky News. I'll, I'll, be, I'll enjoy that segment. Uh, what assumptions have I missed? Like, have I hit any that you get? Or are there other ones that you might get in your day-to-day? You're, you're online, so surely you're getting some fight at you. Oh, I'd say, I mean, the, the Bondi hipster one is, is a fairly obvious one. <laughs> Uh, so you, you, you probably nailed that. Uh, I don't tend to get the, the sort of anti-vax one at oh, all. I think okay. that's yep. because of the very clear position, the, my, my mm. focus on science. Um, so maybe that's, maybe that's really shaped my community again, rather, yes. rather ambiguous okay. there, but yes. I'll leave that for, for the listeners to kind of work through. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think, I think overall, mate, that was, that was fun and, uh, you were, you were pretty spot on a few times there. Okay. All right. All right. Good. So <laughs> bring me to like this, like the starting point and it, you go where, where you would like with, from the starting point mm. of like mainstream media's killed science. You are saying you're in the realm of communicating mm. science, health science, nutrition science. What's, what are we talking about when you're talking about mainstream media killing science? Well, I guess there are, there are, probably a few things we need to to delve into here uh one is what what is mainstream media really concerned with most what's their priority and and can we um even define mainstream media as well in that so mainstream media let's let's think about the the major news channels be it on the tv or online or print media uh we could probably throw in some social media influences who have very big profiles, but maybe we could also talk about them separately as well. Um, we could even include pot, the very popular diet books in here, which very much become, you know, part of, in, they really influence culture and diet culture. Uh, but I guess at, from a, the, from a mainstream media point of view, these large news channels and uh, online uh publications, their primary interest is not communicating science in an effective manner and helping people make better choices to improve their health. It's, it's about writing, uh, you know, clickbaity headlines and, you know, interesting articles. Interesting doesn't mean fact. And you can write a very interesting, engaging article that does generate a lot of traffic and ultimately you know, that, that traffic then has some sort of tangible value to it. Um, so I think we have to think about what is their motives and, and I'm telling people, you know, everything that they already know. I think everyone understands that, but yet we still let these ideas that come through mainstream media become truth because they become, they're so pervasive, even though we understand their motives because they're so pervasive and they're spread so widely and they, they really affect the views of so many people in the public, it becomes our truth. And that's when it's problematic, when it's frustrating for me to see that the, some of the commonly held truths, quote unquote truths in our society with regards to nutrition are very separated from what the actual science shows. And, uh, 
I don't, I don't necessarily blame mainstream media. I don't think they're trying to make people unhealthy. I think they're just doing their job. And uh, I think it would be very helpful if more people in mainstream media understood how to actually decipher science and nutrition science and communicate it. Uh, but perhaps then it becomes a bit more boring. Uh, and, and, and that's one of the problems, right? If you, if you, if you go down the path of absolutes and silver bullets and panaceas, uh, or, or even the opposite, you, from a fear point of view, if you go down those, those lines, it, it's much easier to sell when you were talking about the gray and the nuance, and it's a bit more complicated, it's harder to communicate in a short, short period of time or a paragraph and 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 therefore people are less interested in it so i kind of understand the media's position on this um and probably if i owned a media company and i was writing that that's the type of articles that i would want, want my team to to write um but if we if we look at nutrition science as a as a, a field of science it's not black and white there is nuance and if we're looking at a particular food or a particular nutrient most often more often than not you can't just say is that food healthy or not we have to understand well compared to what what exposure level how much of that food are we talking about in someone's diet uh, what type of person are we talking about a geriatric population are we talking about a pregnant female uh, pregnant woman are we talking about an adolescent uh are we talking about someone at risk of osteoporosis? Uh, and, and what's their overall baseline dietary pattern? Are we talking about someone in a first world country with uh, a, a standard Western diet? Or are we talking about someone in a developing country with very limited food access? And in their circumstances, what is healthy and not healthy is very different. So there is a lot of this, this sort of deeper nuance that is completely overlooked. And, and so a, new, a study will come out and a very surface level understanding of that paper, often just reading an abstract, will end up informing a, a media article or headline. And as I said before, that, that article is then where the layperson is going and is informing uh, and changing uh, the understanding of, of healthy eating in our population, but is separated from where the science lies. Mm. You've, you've painted this picture. I, I liked your definition of mainstream media there because it's, it's one of these terms that people use. Like, you know, you might hear Fox news talk about the left. It's this general, like ethereal, who, who are you talking about? And I hear, I'm hearing you describe it's, it's combined with like a profit, a profit motive combined with like this pervasive, distribution that seeps through and you i heard you outline the fact that we know the profit motive of these companies we see buzzfeed see the clickbait and go ah oh, you're just trying to get me click i know it's going to be deceptive yet you've also outlined the fact that it seeps in and has shifted our understanding of what you're talking about specifically with the nuance in science because you're right i don't read an article that says coconut oil is good for these age groups in these conditions compared to this when when taken in supplements with this i just hear coconut oil cures everything oh really yeah and 
and and what I think ends up happening is we we see the the this message, this very simplified message in mainstream media so frequently after a while we just believe it and then we're no longer questioning it it just becomes it becomes our truth and and uh, I'll, I'll share an example with you perhaps that that uh, that might make this a bit more tangible uh i mentioned diet books and and how they can really they can really change our culture uh and there are you know a handful or more sort of very, very successful, highly popularized books over the last 10, 15 years that have done this. And one example is a book called The Paleo Diet. And that was written by uh, a, a fellow called Lauren Cordain in 2010. And the book was called titled The Paleo Diet, Lose Weight and Get Healthy by Eating the Food You Were Designed to Eat. I believe that's the title plus or minus a few words. And this, this book is, is really the book that inspired the entire paleo movement. You know, the movement today of, of, uh, this sort of caveman style ancestral eating, which has, 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 is still there, but has also morphed into a ketogenic diet over the last say three or four years. Mm -hmm. Uh, these are those diets that's like high meats, high fats, yeah, and Zero so, carb. and the idea is that, and you'll you'll hear people in the community, or you'll see articles online now talking about this is the way. So notice the absolute I just used then, the way that our ancestors ate. Therefore, it is the natural diet for humans. So, there, I'm I'm going to use this as an example because I think there are some learnings here for us, and I guess top line. I'm not actually saying that the the paleo diet as described by Lauren Cordain is a terrible diet. I think there are a number of things in in his diet that he put together that are actually good. He talks about high fiber, he talks about not eating ultra processed foods. So there are some good things in there. I'm more talking about how did he how did he uh, come to this diet and develop it? What was what were the facts that he used to create it? Uh, and why have we sort of accepted it, or at least in certain communities, accepted it as the way that our ancestors ate? So he, you know, in this book, he describes this one single paleo diet as about 70% of calories coming from protein and fats and just 30% from carbohydrates, which is considered a, a sort of low carbohydrate diet. And as you said, is very animal based. So not a lot of plant foods. and this is the reason why there is this large low carb community today. One of the main reasons, but, but is, is that diet that I just described is, is that really what our ancestors ate? Where is this data coming from that Cordain has used? So if you go back and you look at that book and you look at where did he find this information? He used a, a source called the, Mur the Murdoch's Atlas. So he went through this atlas that outlined the diets of various hunter-gatherer tribes. And in this, in this book, it didn't actually say for each hunter-gatherer tribe what percentage of carbs, fat, and protein came from different foods or what percentage of carbs, fats, and protein uh, were in their diets 
all it said was here's the typical foods that are eaten in these by these tribes and it had a score from zero to nine as to how important that food was to their diet so there was no precise data at all he's translated that somehow into carbohydrates fat and and protein now so that's 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 one sort of uh issue with what he with what he's done there but there are there are actually bigger issues the second is that we know now over the last few years in, in particular that dietary surveys of these hunter gatherer tribes have tended to overlook the contribution of calories from women and children who are the gatherers and have really had a bias towards the foods provided by men but but probably the biggest problem with with this with the way that he constructed the diet and the way that he crunched those numbers is that after somehow converting these these diet scores into carbohydrates protein and fat from from hundreds of tribes he then took an average across the world this is hugely problematic because it gives us the idea that there is one optimal human diet but really, the most notable thing, if you go back and you look at the Murdoch Atlas, which is where the paleo diet originally came from, was, was that there was huge variation across the world. Some tribes were eating mostly animals, some mostly plants, and some an even mix of both. That's the take-home message right there. When it comes to hunter-gatherer tribes, we know there was huge variation in the way that they ate and still eat today, the few that remain. And this is, this is in fact, probably what makes Homo sapiens such a successful species. We have this ability to survive in many geographical locations across the world that, that have different types of food available. But instead of communicating this, Cordain went with the absolute message, one paleo diet, which of course is a message that you can better than wrap up in a book and ultimately sell more copies. Mm. It's this oversimplification, what I'm hearing you describe, this oversimplification of humans as, a entire, as an entirety. And then if we can do that, then we can say, and then all we need to do is eat this one thing. But what I found interesting about that book you're describing, as I think, like the paleo fad, the keto fad that kind of emerged and it's probably still kind of going i just remember it just you turn on the tv and someone's talking about it and friends like oh, i'm doing this and, and just some some of these things just take off and and <laughs> i guess the vegans and vegetarians are like man what's going on this our movement never takes off but the thing that's interesting to me <clears throat> about when i'm hearing this book being described it sounds like it's pulled on like this story this human mythology and then that's almost supercharged this movement to go, yeah, we, I'm going back to like my natural roots or something. It's, it's almost like it's taken food and mythology and that's part of the potency of why we look at it and go, plus the reductionistic element that we've spoken about with mainstream media and packages together into this super easy, super consumable. It's an answer. It's simple. Why not just go for it, you know? Precisely. And, and, and that's the way that I would describe the paleo diet as as sort of constructed by lauren cordain who's very much the father of the paleo movement is that it is more of a story than anything 
I mean, that doesn't make it a bad it a bad diet per se, which I said at the sort of top line. I think if you adhere to the kind of diet that Lauren Cordain put forward, it it is much better than many diets out there. But the simple fact is what we're talking about here is it's it's just not informed by science. Mm. It's it is more of a of a of a, of a story and and it's not the only way to achieve good health, which is often what the enthusiasts from this diet camp would have you believe. Mm-hmm. You've, you've used the word, obviously, a few times now. This idea of science. The amount of times me just going through my daily life, I come across people who have wildly different perspectives on whether it be health or right now coronavirus or um, anything climate change they they will go hey i'm just reading the science here's what i'm talking about with the science friend of the show had him on a while back pete evans he would say he's using the same thing he's like science talk to me about when you use that term it sounds like a dumb question Mm. but i think (laughs) meanings change and everyone uses that term to go i'm just looking at the science simon so when you use that word science and end up where you end up what are you talking about And i think you've given a hint at it when you're unpacking the levels and the steps when you talk about science describe what that looks like for you and (laughs) it sounds like i'm making you define tell me your truth but Uh, yeah if you understand the question pete evans god bless him he's probably using the paleo diet book that i just mentioned uh i I believe he is yes (laughs) but uh and 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 something i'll just add there uh and i've got nothing personal against Pete Evans at all. Uh, but speaking more to just people that once you've published a lot of books about something, it even gets harder to change your opinion. And in fact, I think if, if you're, if you're listening now and, and one thing that confuses you is, uh, how do I know who to trust online? A very, very good trait, a very good characteristic of someone is that they are willing to change their view because if you are truly informed by science, then you understand that there is always emerging science. And in fact, having a hypothesis and constantly changing your view on something as new science emerges isn't a bad thing. It's actually a really good thing. That's, that's part of being scientific, truly scientific. Now, you spoke about the fact that everyone is claiming to be evidence-based and saying, I'm, I'm science-based, mm. you know, look at my science. I it, see it on Facebook all the time, Simon. It's, it's become, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, K- Karen and Kevin on Facebook, they're <laughs> evidence-based. Uh, yeah, and they're showing me studies. Let me, kind of, in one sentence, if I was to summarize that, yeah. not all science is created equal. Okay. All right. Tell me more. Okay. So- you can be you can be referring to science and you can go and cherry pick evidence which means hand selecting certain certain evidence uh, that fits your chosen narrative uh, you know we all have a degree of confirmation bias and often what that bias does is it makes us want to look more into evidence that supports our view and makes us want to overlook anything and push it away if it if it doesn't support our view mm-hmm. um which is is problematic I, I personally my love and interest and curiosity for science makes me actually want to lean the other way i think it's i think it's it's it wouldn't be stimulating i wouldn't feel challenged if if i was just 
looking for evidence that completely supported my sort of uh, worldview or um, my say uh, confirmation confirmation bias. Um, but so when I say not all science is equal, uh, what then becomes important is well, how do we how do we kind of uh, understand what is high quality science and what is lower quality science so we can apply some form of methodology to reviewing the literature to come to an evidence-based conclusion. And there is a, an evidence hierarchy which lay, lays out uh, what is the lowest quality of evidence all the way up to what is the highest quality of evidence. High quality evidence, high quality evidence means less risk of bias. The low quality evidence means high risk of bias. And so if we start down the very bottom and we look at low quality evidence, this is editorials, it's expert opinion. You know, it's, it's, it's if I just jump online and just say something without any form of reference to a scientific literature, if I'm just giving my opinion, or if Pete Evans is just giving his opinion, that's down the bottom. That's a very, very low quality of evidence. And then, then one step up is what we call mechanistic studies. I mentioned my dad works under, under the microscope. So this is looking at cells and bacteria or um, looking underneath at a microscopic level, petri dish, or animal studies as well, or also laboratory studies with animals are also at this level. And this level of science is hypothesis generating. It's important for us because it, it can help us uh, understand certain uh, mechanisms that perhaps we can't study in real life humans. Um, and, and so it's, it's important, but it's not the type of evidence that we're using to create public health recommendations for humans. You know, we, we realize that a lot of the time what happens in a Petri dish or an animal doesn't play out in humans. And that's, that's really important. I'll come back to an example of that. And then as we go up one level, we have observational studies. Observational studies are, uh, there's, there's various different types. I won't go into the details, but essentially it's just looking at humans that are, that are real life humans living out in the wild in populations. And we're looking at, you know, the, the various ways they live their lifestyle, including different diets that they might adopt and what are their uh, health outcomes like. And then above that, we have uh, clinical trials. And these are considered more gold standard because unlike in, in a population out in the wild, we can control variables more, which means essentially uh, what we can do is we can make sure that the only difference between the two groups is the the thing that we're interested in looking at. For example, we could have two groups. One is adopting a paleo diet and the other is adopting a Mediterranean diet. Everything else is the same. And we measure their blood pressure and their cholesterol levels after 12 weeks. That's one example. Um, and then above that is systematic reviews and meta-analyses, which are uh, studies that pull together the results of many different individual studies looking at the same, the same intervention, same outcomes. Uh, and the idea there is, say you pull together 30 randomized controlled trials looking at the effect of soy on hormone levels, then 
you're going to reduce your risk of bias by pulling the results from 30 studies uh, as opposed to just looking at one study conducted by one set of researchers in one part of the world. Uh, so essentially that's the framework that we can work through and sort of use to adjudicate how, how, uh, how likely is a certain piece of evidence to be influenced by bias. How, you know, how, how, how good is the quality of that particular piece of evidence? And, uh, there are scientific committees around the world, medical committees that are given this task. They're told to use that evidence hierarchy and to review all of the evidence, uh, the American College of uh, Cardiology, the American Heart Association, the Endocrinology Association, um, the American Cancer Society, and are told to, to these, are, these are committees of usually 10 to 15 different uh, medical doctors and nutrition scientists all who have their own personal diets. They have varying personal diets and they're told to sit down and use the evidence hierarchy and come up with dietary recommendations. And if you look at all of those papers, and in fact, this is often where I recommend people go to look if they're confused, you'll see that they're not recommending keto or carnivore or paleo dietary patterns. They're all recommending plant-based dietary patterns. And by that, I mean diets such as a, a well-constructed Mediterranean diet, the DASH diet, which is a particular type of plant-based diet often used in studies, um, or vegetarian-style diets. And, and that is a very consistent recommendation across all of these different guideline papers from around the world who are given that task of evaluating the current literature and using the evidence hierarchy. Now, I mentioned just just before to kind of close the loop here on uh, a real life example of all science not being equal. Uh, on online, quite often I'll I'll be tagged in a post, someone that is trying to scare the living bejesus out of their followers uh, with regards to eating soy, and and. And uh, I have to laugh because I really wanted to understand where is this fear coming from? And, and so I, I spent, I literally spent a couple of whole days, which is a lot of time going through as many of these posts and blogs online that I could find and looking at their, their citations. Uh, and I found two sources that they were all seeming to to cite as evidence that you should not consume soy. And the, the first piece of evidence that was often cited was uh, rat studies. And these were uh, uh, rats fed uh, high amounts of isoflavones, which are um, a particular phytochemical in soy. Um, and they, they showed uh, some uh, hormonal changes in these rats that were exposed to these isoflavones. But the, firstly, that's, that's an animal study, which I explained before is, is, is sort of right down the bottom in terms of quality of evidence. It's interesting. Um, but secondly, none of these, uh, social media posts or blogs were talking about the exposure level. If you were to translate the exposure level on a, 
um, grams of isoflavones per kilogram of body mass to humans. It is just, it is an, an amount of soy that we would never, ever, ever be able to eat in, in a single serve, let alone a single day. Um, and so that's, that's, that's crazy because you could expose a rat to, you know, 30 cups of dairy milk and, and find some problems, you know, 30 cups of broccoli. We, we have to always consider exposure level. So there are a couple of, uh, things to think about with regards to those rat studies. And then the second piece of evidence was a case study and a case study is again low quality evidence it's an n equals one one person uh it's a write-up of of one person's kind of uh experience that their doctor or someone found interesting and decided to write it up and publish it in a journal and there was a uh a male young a young male adult who was having 13 serves of soy a day uh that's a lot of soy it's a, it's about three liters of soy milk. Uh, and, and so he developed some, uh, breast tenderness and went to his physician and his physician looked at his diet, found it interesting. He was having the 13 serves of soy, which is interesting. I agree. Uh, and wrote it up and, and, and also told him to stop having that 13 cups of soy and his, uh, breast tenderness went away. Now, if, if that was all the science we had, I would understand that people may want to be a little cautious. Again, in the back of my mind, I'd be thinking about the exposure level and I'd be questioning whether that is something we can extrapolate to having, you know, one serve of tofu a day or a serve of tofu and a glass of soy milk. But it's not all we have. And so you'll see on social media people posting about those as if that is scientific fact but they are completely overlooking right at the top of the evidence hierarchy. We have a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. That's the gold standard. 38 different clinical interventions conducted by 38 different sets of researchers across the world. In each study, randomizing male adults and exposing one group to soy and measuring their hormone levels. These studies range from six weeks up to a year long, so plenty of time to see if soy was going to negatively affect hormones. And what did they find? At the levels in these studies, which was on average around three serves of soy a day, there was zero, no effect on testosterone or estrogen. Uh, and, and there was no feminizing effects. So that's the highest quality science we have and really that's what people should be using if they want to speak about whether or not soy is healthy or not for adult males i'm i'm hearing some interesting like the hearing you talk about these studies and the language that you're using like in when you're saying compared to what we in what quantities it all these things it almost gives a bit of a hint at if someone is making obviously a hard and fast claim without necessarily data to back it up. But if someone's going to sound, I suppose, as if they've read the scientific literature, they're probably going to sound more like you when you're making these specific statements about quantities, how much it's measured in, in what kind of diet. It, it, there's these small disclaimers that kind of proliferate through everything you're saying that I think is is a indicator 
to hear the difference as we look at different influences, I suppose, and determine who, who's telling me the truth. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's, it's, if, if it's a blanket statement and it's not given with any of that kind of nuance, um, then there's a reason to be somewhat skeptical, I think. And it, it might be that that person communicating is just trying to keep it super simple, but it may also be to your point that they're, they're oversimplifying it and perhaps, uh, you know, not completely, uh, communicating the full message, uh, of, of what was compared and what exposure amount and what population are we talking about? So in that example there, I spoke about adult healthy males and that's because that's what that randomized control, controlled trial or the meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials looked at. It wasn't females. Um, so if I was going to talk about females, I would need to produce a different piece hmm. of evidence. Yes. And in all of the things you talk about, you're coming at the, you're coming with the, with the implicit assumption that different groups of people are different. Even individual people in different parts of the world might be different. And so if we're going to make a claim, it's going to, it's actually going to be a claim that pertains to the, the only group that was tested. I Googled the um, hierarchy of evidence and it's something that I've never seen. And I teach in a school and I don't know if that's necessarily taught, but it sounds like the activity that I guess would help people the most would be like, as you're reading through like different posts and different opinions and things like that, you, you, you bring up this thing and you go, okay, let me just draw a little like the connector line, like that primary school little activity there from A to B and, and join it up because it is a bit complicated, the being specific, being nuanced, talking specifically about the studies and it sounds like as I map what we've done as a society, we've gone, listen, I'm, I'm a busy man. I'm working like seven till six at night and then I've got kids and all those kinds of things. I don't have time for all this stuff. So what we did was like, well, of course, you know, we'll have people who specialize in this and then they go and study it and then they get into groups and go, how do we eliminate bias? And they go, well, let's get a group together and we'll call it like, for example, the cardiac association that you mentioned. Um, we'll get them together and they can do all this for us and then they can spit out recommendations. Oh, that's really great. So we've we've used these institutions to simplify something that's very complicated that hopefully can make our life simpler. But it's, it seems like in the current political climate where politics has infiltrated science, especially when it comes to things like climate change, it, it seems like, and maybe it could be interesting to get your thoughts on this, what has eroded our trust in institution? Because that institution seems like a great shortcut to something very complicated that's taken you many, many hours and degrees to kind of sort through and then communicate to us. What has, what has, what has assisted that erosion to the point where I might say something like, if I'm in a conversation going, oh, but this association recommends this. They're like, oh, well, you can't trust them. Oh, why not? Well, they're owned by like Big Pharma or they're owned by you know, billionaires or, or something. I just, and then it's all, it's all dismissed. What, what's your take on that? I think there, I mean, if, if we're talking to nutrition science, uh, I would say, I mean, social media and, and mainstream media, if we were to remove those, uh, and I'm not suggesting we do that, but if we were to remove those and you mailed out the guidelines to people's mail, and that was the only communication they had around their diet, I think we'd be in a far better place. Um, I think we'd be in a far better place because the whilst 
there on the the internet has given us uh, a great means of accessing good information. It's also a very easy way to to stumble across misinformation and just becomes too difficult. And when it becomes too difficult, I think I think a lot of people just end up sticking with what they they know. Um, why why have we lost faith in these large institutions? These, these medical institutions? It's a great question. It's something that I think about quite a lot. Um, you know, in the nutrition space, I think there's a lot of Dunning-Kruger effect. You know, people uh, have an anecdotal experience, change their diet, and all of a sudden they become an advocate for that diet and they champion it as, uh, you know, because they had this experience, whether it's a carnivore or paleo and they lost some weight, it must be the best, single best diet. And they're not actually scientifically trained, but they, they, they're passionate about um, their experience and sharing it and they build large communities. And so they're, they're driving a message like carnivore or keto or paleo that runs counter to the medical establishments. Um, and because they have lost some weight and improved their health, then they start questioning the, the, these guidelines. Well, hang on. If I've had this experience on a low-carbohydrate diet and the guidelines aren't recommending a low-carbohydrate diet, the guidelines must be wrong. They must be up to something. Um, but the, the guidelines are not necessarily saying that the the dietary recommendation that they're giving is the only way to improving your health. They're just saying, based on the best evidence we have today, this is what a a, a healthy dietary pattern looks like. Um, and and so I think that social media is probably the root cause of this this loss of of trust in these large scientific communities um and and scientific bodies but you know at the at the end of the day if if you get 12 15 very very experienced medical doctors and nutrition scientists in the room and and they all follow different diets, there's going to be a lot that they disagree on. But, but what I can confidently say is the, what they do agree on must be rooted in science. So, and that's what ends up in the guidelines. It is what all of those different people coming from different angles, what do they actually agree on? Um, and so, you know, it's disappointing. I don't think I have the actual answer for you. If I had the answer for, for why that trust is, has uh, dissipated, eroded, um, then maybe, maybe I'd be spending my time working on how to fix that because I think, that's, I think that'd be a great, um, you know, starting point to turning things around. But it's unfortunate. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely see those scientific guidelines as I said earlier, uh, as the, the best place for someone to go if they are confused. Now, if someone is just completely anti-establishment, it becomes a hard conversation to, to have because you know, they're, they're not interested in the scientific uh, consensus papers. They're not interested in using the evidence hierarchy. And, and then, unfortunately, it's not really a scientific conversation anymore. Mm-hmm. 
the the areas, I suppose, as you say, you're not you're not exactly sure. But I'm hearing you pull out a few different threads, and one of them seems to be a combination of perhaps a lack of our own self-awareness on the psychology of how we function. And that seems to make us fall for tricks that we might be educated enough to know exist, but not self-aware enough to completely know that we're being, um, that we're like being influenced by them. And, and it seems like, so some of the things you mentioned were like, if, if, if an opinion pervades society enough, we often just accept it to be true and we don't necessarily think about it or confirmation bias. If I already think something, I'm far more likely if you say something, I agree with Simon, I'm like, yep, that's definitely true. Cause I already do it. And it's, it takes, that's like a high level of self-awareness, but then that also combines with, I'm hearing like profit motive. There's incentives built within society that, you know, the, the paleo movement, people are going to make a lot of money. We have an ins- okay. We sell things easier when things are simple and we have silver bullets and people know what to do. So it's like if you take something as complex as diet, simplify it down to a product that we want to sell. It sounds like all the incentives push us. This, these capital incentives push us to simplify, and that goes. That is exactly the opposite of what science is trying to do, which is trying to diversify, be specific, um, explore a whole different range of things. That's that sounds like a few of the themes you've unpacked. Definitely. And, and I want to kind of be clear, it's not just about picking on the paleo diet. This happens with the vegan diet as well. Uh-huh. And, and so it's, it's, it's the same thing. If you create a, a book that is absolute in terms of the vegan diet, uh, you know, being the one and only diet for good health, um, which, you know, has been done and, and, and say you over extrapolate and uh, and cherry pick various forms of evidence to create that position, then you you will be able to uh, uh, tap into those sort of uh, very tribal vegan communities and and sell more copies of your book and and essentially I guess that's what a lot of this the diet wars is it's kind of tribalism fitting into a box right um, but. Uh, you know, so when I wrote my book, because my message around what, what the science shows for healthy eating is not an absolute message because there is gray in there, it, it, it probably worked against me in terms of, of sales. Um, and, and because, because I'm not really speaking to one particular tribe, uh, you which, don't have that religious religiosity kind of attached to it that perhaps some dietary fads do if you write a book for a particular diet tribe if you write Mm. the new paleo book or the new keto book or the new vegan book it's going to be picked up by those communities and it's going Mm. to be spread and you know it's 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 going to be uh heavily endorsed uh because it as you just mentioned before you're you're going to tell people what they want to hear Mm. Um, and, and, and you're, you're sort of catering for their confirmation bias. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think, I mean, I, I agree completely with you there in terms of, uh, what you were saying. So, so it sells more books then. So Simon, why don't you just, you know, compress it, sell the pill or the, sell the magic bullet 
why i suppose two-part question why not kind of do the same thing why why don't you want to adhere to that kind of profit motive and i suppose because this this conversation around nutrition for me is fascinating because i've watched it raise my whole life i did i was a pe teacher so a bit of new tiny tiny bit of nutrition as, as i studied and i would just watch this this tribalism that you're describing kind of unfold and as i now watch vaccine debates unfold climate change debates unfold it's the same proxy wall it's the same underlying battle of who do we trust how do we know a confirmation bias all these elements so for you simon why care about nutrition this much what what's the benefit and why don't you i guess just follow the trend of everybody else well if i was in this just for for a quick buck in the short term then maybe i'd be inclined to do that and to to speak in absolutes and uh just play that tribalism game but i want to be a trusted voice for for decades to come and so i'm playing the long game and i think if you represent the science honestly and you are using the evidence hierarchy uh and you're giving people high quality information then no matter what new science comes out you're a trusted voice you are someone who is you know there to essentially translate the science as it comes out communicate it in an effective way and uh and give people information that can help them make more informed decisions which is exactly what you spoke about before how we've been you know as a society we started to kind of delegate this task for others that don't have time i believe that the general public do not and should not have to have the nutritional literacy that I have today mm -hmm. to be healthy. They should just have good quality information. And it frustrates me and angers me that they don't. And, and many, many people uh, are confused. So, mm. you know, I find, I find it rewarding to give people good information, but I also find it challenging. I, I wouldn't be challenged if, if, if I, if, if I just chose my narrative today and I was going to stick with that for the, for the remainder of my life and not be open to science and getting right into the, the weeds of the, the new papers that come out and trying to really understand what they do and what they don't tell us and where the gaps are for future research, then you know, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be hosting the podcast that I host today. I wouldn't be interested in, in, in writing a book. And um, so I guess there's a, there's a little piece of it that is uh, somewhat selfish. Mm. What's, your, what's your journey to caring about this stuff and getting involved in and going into the weeds that you're talking about in your podcast and in your book? When I was 15, I saw for the first time what loss of health looks like. Uh, I was, spent the day with my dad out in the Yarra Valley. We grew up in Victoria and uh, we were visiting a few different wineries. We did this quite regularly on Sundays, often with my brother. He wasn't there this day. And as we were driving back uh, home and we had a house in King Lake at that time, which is quite rural, uh, my dad started to get some chest pain. And at, at first he kind of played it down. And, uh, we got home and cooked dinner and, uh, he reassured me that everything was okay. And I headed off to bed and uh, a couple hours later, I was woken to some noise in the kitchen and I thought I better go out and, and see if he was okay. And, um, I went out and he definitely wasn't okay. He was 
breathless. He was uh, kneeling down. Uh, he was making his way to, to grab the phone. In fact, I think he'd already had grabbed it. Uh, and he he was calling triple zero, the the emergency uh, number in Australia. And um, I ended up taking the phone and uh, sort of uh, describing the situation to to the lady on the other end. And um, after after describing what was happening and the the pain that he was feeling and his symptoms, they said, well, we need to send a helicopter. Um, you've, you're, you're very remote. You're a long way away from the nearest hospital. Uh, and so they did, they sent a helicopter. It came very quickly before I knew it. They brought the stretcher in, scooped him up, uh, hooked him up to oxygen. were connecting all of these wires and checking his vital signs and, uh, wheeled him out to the helicopter. I couldn't fit. And they, uh, said to me that I would trail in the ambulance on the road and meet them at the hospital. And so that was a very long, uh, journey to the hospital. And by that time I'd called my, uh, my mom and my brother who were staying in the city and they came out and, and met us at the hospital. And I remember the doctor coming out after about an hour or so. And he said, you know, we've saved your dad's life. And, you know, that was what we were most concerned by. So, of course, we were very, very relieved. Um, and he said, tomorrow we'll, we'll have a, a family meeting, a bit of a debrief as to your dad's condition. Uh, and we'll give, give, you, give you some tips as well for your family. And so we did. The next day we caught up and um, I was 15. My brother was 17. Uh, and my dad was 41 and my dad had suffered a very, very severe heart attack. Uh, he, he was, I'd say representative of a normal young Australian father. He was by no means, uh, you know, morbid, morbidly obese. He was probably a little bit overweight, like, like many overworked, uh, young fathers, um, but he was still relatively active. He would go to the gym three, four times a week. Uh, he had no uh, diagnosis, no no chronic diseases. He was not taking any medications. He was not relying on the healthcare system. So this all came out of the blue. Um, and uh, that next day, the cardiologist said to my brother and I that you know, we were nearly young adults that we would need to be screened and just be conscious of this growing up because my dad's dad had also had a heart attack, albeit his was in his sixties. Uh, and so he explained that cardiovascular disease runs in families and that's where the conversation ended, which, you know, that's, it's not bad advice in itself. It's, it's, it's good advice for anyone with a family history of cardiovascular disease to perform regular blood tests, to see a cardiologist when they're a little bit older uh, and you can do stress tests and things like that. But I just wish the conversation had gone a bit further because for uh, over a decade, uh, my brother and I assumed that it was our genetic fate. You know, our dad had had this heart attack at 41 and from the outside for all intents and purposes was a healthy young dad. So, you know, why would this be any different for us? Uh, and, you know, in my mid twenties, uh, having 
gone and, and started deep diving into the scientific literature and doing a master's in nutrition, it became very clear to me that by and large, the reason these, these diseases like cardiovascular disease, various types of cancer, type two diabetes, Alzheimer's dementia, you know, these diseases that we've normalized in our society, we've accepted them. We see them affecting our friends and families. We see people in their late forties, fifties, sixties, all the time being affected by these diseases, which communities around the world uh, are not seeing at the same rates. We've, we've normalized them, but the reason they're running in families by and large is, is not genetics. It's because families adopt the same lifestyle and, and, and while a very small percentage of people do, do have uh, crummy genes and no matter what they do, how healthy their lifestyle is, they end up with some form of disease. Uh, and that's very tragic for, for most people, even if you are dealt bad, uh, a bad genetic card, like myself, I probably do have, uh, some genes that predispose me to cardiovascular disease. That's true. But even if that's the case, there's very good science showing that our health fate is significantly more influenced by our lifestyle. Around 20% of our fate is determined by genetics and about 80% by our lifestyle. And we know that from looking at studies of identical twins who go on to live in different environments. So they have the same genetic code, but they live in different environments and we can look at different health outcomes. Um, and so when I discovered that, in instead of this very disempowering uh, uh, idea of, of my health will be determined by my genes and my, my family has crummy cardiovascular genes, I became very empowered. And it was something that, uh, you know, initially I wanted to share with my friends and my family and help them make better choices. Uh, and then, you know, feeling good and seeing people make changes then you know ultimately inspired me to start posting information on social media and and then you know eventually starting the podcast so that I could continue to to dig deeper into various topics with different experts from around around the world and and you know hopefully um, you know bring the community along with me and just help people become uh, more confident with the, the food choices that they're making for themselves and their families. And the, the end goal being not to just accept these chronic diseases as normal, but to proactively make changes so we can improve our, our health span and, and our lifespan, which means, you know, doing more of whatever it is we love to do in our day to day for, for longer. Mm. Yeah. I don't know if you, yeah, you're painting this picture that in a way, uh, it, a lot of people that will be listening would it, like be encouraged by, it. you know, you can, you can take control of these things. You don't have to be a victim necessarily of the genes, uh, even though that can stack things against you in, in certain different ways. Uh, so it's kind of like an empowering message of we, we can move towards health as best we can and there's good evidence to sh show that the decisions we make can impact that in a positive way i don't know if you've come across this critique or not but some people might say to you simon 
you're using like all this science and we've touched on the fact that, you know, people might be anti-establishment and anti-science, anti-science establishment in general. But they might go, Simon, you're looking at things in these atom, atomized trials. Science pulls things apart and takes them out of their context. It's, it's not holistic. It's, you know, you need other tools other than the way in which sci- science looks at things. Have you ever come across that critique of science is an incomplete science, as it were. It's it's one way of looking at things, but they might be saying, Simon, you're missing you're missing something else that science can't measure. That's that science gets wrong because it might be pharmaceutically focused, or because it's like focuses on the tiny one element when it's like it, it needs to be part of the whole. I'm sure there's many problems with science. Uh, I'll be the first person to put my hand uh-huh. up and and acknowledge that. But I'm yet to see. Uh, something better that can guide us to to making better you know decisions. So if someone can present something to me that I believe is uh, more compelling, then by by all means present it. Um, but to your point about about science being you know micro or reductionist, this is where different study designs come into play. Uh, you can have these very uh, tightly controlled, randomized controlled trials. And, um, you know, one of the limitations of a study, let's say, for example, a randomized controlled trial where you're bringing people into a hospital and feeding them certain food is generalizability. How generalizable is that to people out in the community? But but these limitations, these limitations are known by the researchers. Uh, often, often uh, it's, you know, the narrative online is that, oh, there's limitations in science and therefore we shouldn't trust it. Trust me, the the people that understand the limitations the most are the researchers. They actually write about the limitations in every single paper. At the end, you'll see limitations and strengths of every single paper are written about. Um, and so, you know, science is, is not about just zooming in at a microscopic level and looking at one single study. It is being able to look at a broad body of evidence, looking at converging lines, looking at different types of study design from different populations uh, over different periods, different exposure levels, and looking where are the lines pointing into the same direction? Where are we seeing consistent messages? Um, And, you know, to date, that for me has been the most compelling way of trying to determine what we should be eating more of and what we should be eating less of. Mm. So the the stepping stones that I see connecting the health conversations, the ones I see often inevitably lead to this crystal wielding new age world of of alternative science or different like naturopathy and things like that. How, how do you see perhaps some people that might look at crystals and say that thing that's going to heal this. Like Simon, are you like going to be frequenting the crystal shop in Byron or how do you see those people that might believe that there's science or that science can't yet prove what these types of alternative medicines can do like crystals or like oils or like these other things? I just come back to compared to what? You know, I, 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 if someone believes that a, that a crystal, let's say, uh, you know, cures a, a particular type of cancer and, and that's the, the treatment um, that, 
path that they want to go down. I mean, I always come back to compared to what? Well, what evidence do we have about other forms of treatment for that particular cancer and, and how strong is the evidence and, and what what reduction in, in risk of mortality do we see and, and, and weighing it up because ultimately any choice that we make, um, be it, um, you know, to use a crystal or to use a pharmaceutical medication for me comes back to what is the stronger form of evidence. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's, um, it's, it would be risky if there was good scientific evidence out there to support a, a particular type of pharmaceutical intervention. Um, it would be risky to go against that and choose the juice cleanse or the crystal healing if there was, you know, zero uh, evidence out there to to suggest that that was equal or or better in terms of effectiveness. But the the follow up pushback they would say is be like Simon, big pharma controls these trials, they fund the studies. No one's going to fund small crystal mm. and small juice cleanse. You know, we're we're up against the behemoth of capital that we spoke about before. So of course, there's more evidence for these other ones because these little the little guy gets actively shut down by any competition to the pharmaceutical. Yeah, this then gets starts to go right into <laughs> into the weeds, and it 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 becomes a difficult conversation. Uh, you know, I think if 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 cleansing or certain types of green juices were as effective or more effective than drugs, I believe that there there would have been investment behind them to show that to substantiate it. Um, I. I think, you know, the, I want to be careful how I, I, I frame some of this. Um, there's, there are a lot of anecdotal stories, for example, out there around someone turning to fasting and curing their cancer. And, um, you know, there, that we can look on surface level and, and think, well, why is fasting, why are we not talking about this more? Why is it not studied? Why, you know, yes, why, you've nailed yeah, the critique. That's yeah, exactly yeah. we're hearing so, with like okay. COVID right now. Yeah. So, so here's, here's, here's what I want to throw back at you. Okay. So we hear the success story of someone that, that uh, fasted and cured their cancer. Now I want to say back to you a couple things. And I'm not, again, if this is, if someone has experienced this, I'm not taking anything away from anyone. I just want you to think about this from a scientific lens. How sure are we what their diagnosis was prior? How confident are we in this anecdote? If it's not studied, how confident are we that they had a specific form of cancer prior and then afterwards it was completely gone? It's not documented. So these are anecdotes. Um, so I think we, we need to consider that. Secondly, how many people did the same thing but died? Okay, so we have an incomplete picture. Now, do, do you see where I'm going with this? If, if, if we're going to consider fasting for a particular type of cancer, just because there are success stories out there, that's not the complete picture. What I need to see is if you put 100 people through that, firstly, do they have a solid diagnosis at the start that we can confirm? And secondly, for every person that is successfully treated with fasting, how many die? And would they have been better off taking another intervention? So 
what I'm trying to to get through here is a lot of the time in this alternative space, we see people pointing to anecdotes and it's, it's not as simple as that. It is much more complex. Um, and so we, you know, it's a little bit like, um, you know, sometimes you can, uh, get glowing reviews or emails about, about your book. And I often get them, but I'm also aware that there are probably a lot of people out there that hated the book that haven't emailed me. Um, <laughs> and, and so ones that really hated did, <laughs> yeah. um, so we can get a skewed representation of how effective something is, is what I'm saying. Um, yes. And, and so... Back to that human element kind so of thing. So I, I, look, I understand the hesitancy and I understand the questioning of pharma. I get it. I, yes. I completely understand it. But at the same time, um, you know, coming back to what I was saying before, if there's going to be another option, a more compelling option for me, then I want to see stronger. I need to see some form of good evidence that is stronger than someone just saying, I know someone's brother's sister who, who bought this crystal or who did the fasting and it healed them. Um, what, what's, what's their argument at, at its best then? If you say, yeah, I understand the critique of big pharma. If, if you're to say, this is what they might be saying that has some, some grounds in it if I reframed it or positioned it. As in, if I was arguing for the juice cleanse? No, I mean, if, if, if someone said, like, if when someone brings that argument that I brought to you, mm. if you were to say, all right, here's what you've, here's what I might agree with within what you're saying, do they have any, okay. yeah. is there here's, any truth elements what I, to it? Here's what I might agree with. I might agree, for example, that fasting could be, could be an effective, okay. it could be effective for someone depending on the condition they have. Now, I, I just want to make this really clear. This is just an example. I'm not talking about yes. any, any evidence here. <laughs> not health advice um, from yeah. Simon here. But, but I, I could say that, okay, I can see how that could lead to an effective outcome for someone, but I'm unsure how many people do we need to treat overall to get one, uh, one positive effect. Um, mm -hmm. I'm unsure uh, from your story as to what the clear diagnosis was before and after um and so for me it's it's not it's 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 just not clear cut enough for me to to be going down that path over a clinically uh you know run intervention even if pharma if if pharma is involved in uh funding a study um these papers are still peer-reviewed they have to um, have a, a control group, a placebo group. Uh, you you have to um, show your data and your statistics, and and so um, you know they're not. It's not like pharmaceutical companies going out there to be fraudulent. They're not doing that. Um, you know, I don't. I definitely don't believe that. And also, I believe that pharmaceutical companies, even when you look at the like opium epidemic in America, that's in Australia, I guess, as well. Their 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 incentive is to to make money, um, yeah. but I don't think they doctor their results. And so okay. I think they can they can create clever um, study methodologies and study designs. But if you're if you're uh, if you understand how to read science, you can see that 
you can see what did they compare to or what was the exposure or uh, and you can kind of get a feel for how did that industry affect the study in a way that would give them a favorable outcome. For example, the egg industry often funds studies that have a specific methodology that is set up to make eggs look good. Now they're not they're not actually in there uh, manipulating the numbers and paying the researchers to change the numbers, but they are probably heavily involved in the uh, study design. Um, but the the pharmaceutical companies, one thing that I come back to quite a bit with, you know, if we're talking about uh, cancer or uh, diabetes is, you know, it is in their best interest to produce good outcomes in the trials, to have a, a, a to have an effective f- drug. Um, you know, they're, they're a profit-driven business. And at the end of the day, um, you know, whether we fully believe in everything that they're doing, you know, I believe that our healthcare system is set up, is not healthcare, it's sick care. We're all about managing sickness and we're far too reliant on the pharmaceutical industry. Absolutely. But these companies are still incentivized to produce drugs that are better than their competitors for managing that condition um, or for treating that condition. So, um, you know, I, I'm certainly, I certainly haven't lost full faith in, um, in drug trials, even though I understand that, you know, they're, they're, these are, uh, you know, private big public companies that are, um, you know, profit driven. I mean, I'm hearing you pull out that perhaps what is lumped in together when, because your critique is from an overemphasis on pharmaceutical drugs as solutions and the space that you sit in is saying, I believe that, you know, health and nutrition can sit in this helpful space where these are still useful. But I think if there's an over-reliance on it when you're not necessarily needing to, um, but then people might take that you know, they'll look at the profit motive that you've just said, they're incentivized to make money, they will uh, do certain things and do certain trials that get the results that they're kind of looking for, and then they'll publish that. But you're saying there's evidence through so that you can find out exactly what they've done. But you're also you're also detaching the fact that they're still using science, they're still adhering to this scientific method. So what I think the argument I put to you before is almost using big pharma to attack science itself as opposed to just critiquing the excesses of profit motive within this industry. I think I might've lost your, your train of thought there, but (laughs) okay. (laughs) Maybe everyone else did too. (laughs) Um, do do you want to, do you want to just repeat that question for me? Oh, it it was, it was just mainly highlighting what, what you were, what you were talking about, not, not using, not attacking science itself. Whereas it sounds like the argument I put to you before is, is using big pharma to attack science, whereas you're kind of saying, no, no, this method gives evidence. It shows the, the log of where everyone's been. I'm for science, even though there might be some things that big pharma need to probably like, we need to be aware of that they're incentivized to do. Definitely. And, and, you know, in many ways, Big Pharma is uh, is more profitable when we have a sick population, and uh, at the core of my message, it's it's about reduce reducing the number of people that end up in a position where they need to rely on Big Pharma. You know, I think that we would be very silly to think that that every single drug produced by big pharma has been harmful and we shouldn't trust it. There are drugs out there, many that are 
absolutely helping people live longer, that are reducing their risk of uh, developing various chronic diseases. For example, people living with uh, type 2 diabetes who are uh, taking insulin. These mm. insulin is absolutely reducing the, their uh, chance of or their risk of developing cardiovascular disease, um, you know, losing their vision, having amputations. Um, so I think that ultimately what you, what you just said then is, is where I kind of sit on it, that, that they, big pharma is profit driven. Uh, but also I believe that part of what they're doing in, in terms of, of maximizing their profits means they have to produce effective drugs. Uh, you know, of course, like all drugs, there are side effects. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, so they don't come without mm. any, any type of, of cost, but they're, a, they're a valuable addition to our society, mm -hmm. I, th I just think we need to, to, if we're going to really create health, um, you know, we want to reduce our reliance on them. Mm. At, at the risk of costing you book sales as, as we finish up here, could you, uh, I was going to say, throw some shade at the vegans and critique perhaps, you mentioned it before, Vegans might like this tribalized vegan movement. What might be your critique of, because people might go, oh, plant-based and the guys are vegan or vegans would love like all this stuff. What would be your critique of some of the vegan movement? It might be all of it or just some of it. Where might be their excesses or their blind spots? I think when it comes to nutrition science, it's uh, over extrapolating from some of the observational research uh, and, and cherry picking certain um, single studies to to try and create a position that the vegan diet is absolutely the most optimal diet for human health. Uh, that's that's certainly not what the research shows. I think um, there is often some uh, over extrapolation from a couple of studies looking at vegan diets and um, cardiovascular disease. Um, and these, these studies really do have some limitations. Um, you know, one study in particular, uh, which is a, is a good study. Um, it was a randomized controlled trial, not to go too far into the weeds here, but this is an example. It was a randomized controlled trial and in one group, they just had standard care. These were people that, um, were at risk of, of cardiovascular disease or already had cardiovascular disease. Sorry. were at risk of having another cardiac event. Um, and so they randomized people, one control group, just standard care, and then one intervention group. And the intervention group adopted a sort of almost vegan diet, but they also stopped smoking. They also started exercising. They started doing, um, stress management. And so it was a multi-modality sort of intervention um, so in that sort of study, because of that, there are now multiple differences between the intervention group and the control group. So you can't say that the outcome is, um, you know, you can't independently sort of attribute that to the diet itself. It could have been the fact they stopped smoking. It could have been the fact they started exercising. Um, so that, that's, that's kind of one area where I think in the, in the vegan community, there is a little bit of a over extrapolation. Um, 
you know, but also I understand why, um, that this sort of happens. And I think it's, it's more so, uh, the ethics starting to blur the nutrition science, um, which that part I don't agree with. I, th- I think that there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, from a, from a human health point of view, it is clear that these more plant-based dietary patterns, be it Mediterranean or pescatarian, um, are, uh, are, uh, consistently associated with the best health outcomes. And that can be plant predominant, or it could be a well-planned plant exclusive diet. Uh, and then saying, you know, if we were to, to, to look at our food choices through the lens of planetary health and animal welfare, there, there is a strong, a stronger case can be made. This is a different conversation, but a stronger case can be made for someone to adopt a diet that is as plant exclusive or as vegan as possible based on their circumstances. Um, so, you know, that's, I guess that's my, would be my critique. I think the ethical argument for, for veganism is the strongest argument. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that should be distinct from nutrition science where I definitely don't think, um, you know, that's the kind of, uh, strongest way to to argue for a vegan diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there is there anything you want to add just as we finish up that you might not have gotten to? I think we've covered some some big okay. territory here. Um, yes. You know my t- my my, I guess the the takeaway points are you know all science is not equal. Um, you know we've we've spoken about the fact that absolutes sell. Uh, absolutes are, are sexy. They sell books. Um, but not necessarily representative of the scientific truth and some of that nuance that exists compared to what, how much of, of, of this food are we talking about? Uh, what, what population, what type of people? Um, and I think you, you summarized that nicely earlier that when you're reading something online or you're listening to someone on a podcast or looking at a social media post, are they paying attention to any of the any of that level of detail and those are probably uh some some good signs that they are you know actually evidence-based and it's not just something in their bio if people want to follow you more find your podcast buy your book and just follow you in general where can they do that uh so you can go to plantproof.com forward slash book that's where you can uh, find a link to all the places that are selling the book. It's it's in all the bookstores across Australia uh, and all the online uh, retailers. If you're not sick of listening to my voice, you can uh, you can jump over and join us on the Plant Proof podcast, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at uh, plant underscore proof. Simon, thanks so much for taking so much time and following me into the different ways that I see <laughs> pop up when we're talking about science and data. Um, if you're still listening to the show and you disagree with everything, you're like, I can't believe I made it through an hour and a half of some guy <laughs> I completely disagree with, then you're welcome. You're in the right place. Thanks for joining us and send me a DM. Shoot me a DM saying, Matt, I listened to the whole thing, disagreed, and I'll send you the highly coveted golden emoji medal. These things are rare. You can spend them wherever you want to spend them. I'll send one to you. Thanks for tuning in and I'll catch everyone in the next episode.